As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. There's really a handful of cases over my career that have really stuck with me. Um, Eurydice and Aya are on that list. Some of the others catch you just for the most unexpected reasons. I had a case overseas of a man who, to this day, has had the most severe constellation of injuries from a beating that I've seen. I mean, I've I've never beaten anyone. I don't know how how long really it takes, but I this did not happen quickly. And he was a really vulnerable guy. He had mental illness, he had a bit of intellectual impairment, but people loved him. And two people decided over a crappy $100 car that didn't even work, but they wanted it. And to get that, excuse my French, but they absolutely beat the shit out of him. And you just think, why? My book, CSI Told You Lies, is now available and there are links in the show notes to help you buy it in paperback, as an ebook, or as an audiobook. Today we're joined by one of the forensic pathologists I've written about. 
Dr Joanna Glengarry studied for eight years to be a surgeon, but not long after completing her studies and entering the field, she realised it just wasn't for her. Of all the areas she'd dipped into on her way to theatre, Joanna knew it was pathology that interested her most, and forensic pathology was where she really longed to be, which in her native Auckland meant another five years of formal study just to get her an introduction at the city mortuary. She obviously gave a good interview and they needed help on Saturdays, so they allowed her to volunteer as a mortuary assistant for that one morning a week after 13 years of med school. Fortunately for Joanna, but unfortunately for Auckland, the mortuary was severely understaffed and they had a lot of violent deaths, so she quickly picked up more shifts, even paid ones. And in no time at all, Dr Glengarry became a very handy forensic pathologist. So handy, in fact, that she was poached, of course, by the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, or VIFM, in Melbourne, which is the place I wrote my book about. Joanna has become legendary among Australian pathologists because she happened to be on call on two separate mornings, months apart, when two young women's bodies were found. We'll get to those cases and the impact that being on call on mornings like those has on your life and your career. And we'll talk about a lot of other things too that you may or may not have thought about when it comes to real forensics experts. At some points during this conversation, we'll talk about a man called Professor Stephen Cordner, also known as Prof. He was the director of VIFM from its inception in 1987 until he stepped down from that role in 2014. He retains a number of roles at the Institute to this day and is also featured in my book. As I'm sure you'll notice by both of our tones, Professor Cordner is much loved and often comes up in conversation. One of Prof's many gifts is that he's a wonderful teacher. He readily agreed to read my manuscript in secret before anyone else so that I wouldn't embarrass myself with any terrible scientific or medical errors further down the track. There really was a lot that could have been lost in translation over the many months of interviews with various people involved in the same matters and then transcribing the conversations in which many things are communicated non-verbally. Many terms I've never heard before are muffled and garbled. The closer I came to finishing the book, the more I realised how big a chance there was that I'd made some really embarrassing mistakes in there. The thing about Prof, though, is that while he's an absolute international rock star of forensic pathology, I knew he'd be encouraging, he'd help me fix it if it was really outrageously full of mistakes, and he wouldn't make fun of me to the others. As it turned out, he only had a handful of what he called minor queries, which was one of the biggest reliefs of my life. I'm telling you all of this because he did drop hints about the book around the Institute after that to the other people who were in it, but they only got to read it themselves very, very recently. So that's why I had to ask Dr Joanna Glengarry about the book first, of course. How did she feel seeing herself in it? What did she think about her chapter? I have. I've clicked through. It reads really well. It reads really well. No, well done. Glad. I'm so glad you like it. That was the most nerve-wracking bit was sending them off to you guys. (laughs) No, that's awesome. It still feels really weird. It's like, but that's like a real book. And it's me. (laughs) There was a moment when I was writing about Richard and like he and I know each other reasonably well and we have got a great relationship. But there was a moment when I was describing him and I thought, God, this is so weird. (laughs) And it will be so weird for him to read and... I thought, I've never done that before. I've never written about anyone like that before. And I had to send it to him. I had to, you know, send it to him and go, is this okay? Like, (laughs) We've all probably said horrible things about Richard most of the time. (laughs) I know. It's kind of like that. He's. I thought he would be used to people kind of taking the piss, really. He wouldn't be used to being described like this. And he was, yeah, really touched. And he's like, oh, that's great. No, go for it. Go for it. So that gave me a bit more confidence. Are you pleased with how it's all come out? Yeah, yeah, I'm really happy with it because I have so much affection for everyone in it and the feedback's been great. Just finally now I'm talking to people who've read it, like journalists and stuff, and it's awesome because they're really engaged. Yeah, they're they're really into it and they're really into you guys and their questions are really, like they've really read it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, just yesterday I spoke to a a woman, a journalist who from Brisbane who was really into your chapter and Soren. So that was good. Nice. 
So that's yeah. good. Oh, I can't wait to take it home to show my mum. She'll be so proud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you working on any specific research at the moment? Yeah, we're looking at looking at machine learning or artificial intelligence and how we can incorporate that into streamline and optimize some of the the work that we do. Like say I've got an image of a particular injury and I think, oh, I'm sure I had a case that looked like that and what other cases look like that. We're hoping to be able to put it in and the machine learning will recognize the image and be able to generate all of the other cases that had injuries that look like that and, and just sort of be really able to work on all of the data that we've got from thousands of cases over the years and really make it searchable and streamline our workflow and and do all of that so because at the moment the computers are you know from when windows 98 was probably top of the line and you know just trying to keep up with it so um monash university is doing a lot with that and they're incredibly smart people and it's just so exciting to see what they can do and 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 work with that so image recognition i guess in the in the first instance and then image recognition if we can flag at an early stage cases that have got concerning findings, so skull fractures or bleeding in the head, um, to help us decision make around that. Just, yeah, they use it in clinical medicine a lot in hospitals already um, with CT scans. So we're just trying to bring that in and do that here because CT scans on the deceased are, are different than they are on live people. There's sort of little quirks and things that change after death. So just trying to get the machine all trained up and develop the algorithms that they do to deal with it. So. Even the CT um, scan was such a breakthrough, wasn't it, to use that post-mortem? Oh, hell yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't believe there's still some places around the world that think that a CT scan is some sort of newfangled witchcraft, <laughs> whereas here, I think we've had it since 2005, it's normal, it's routine, and it's such an integral part of what we do. Yeah, it's changed everything for the better, I think. Yeah, but when I walk around the halls there and there's the photos, you know, from back I don't know, maybe even 100 years ago, and I'm talking to people a lot about that at the moment, about the book. Forensics is not very old in terms of a science at all. How old is it really? In Stephen's working lifetime, say, Dr. Cordner's working lifetime, it's gone from being a a science that wasn't particularly, wasn't held in particularly high esteem to where it is now, where it's celebrated and you're working in one of the most highly celebrated facilities in the world and you guys travel around the world to work. How long has it been a thing even? Maybe 100 years that forensics has been? I mean, probably over the centuries, there's been dissection of Mm. the dead. And a lot of that was trying to find out the anatomy, trying to find out the cause of death. And the problem was that clearly that was seen as distasteful to a lot of people. And it probably wasn't helped that there were grave robbers and all sorts of nefarious activities that went on and lectures held in in a lecture theatre, demonstrating this sort of anatomy and so I think it has always had that stigma because people are afraid of death and and anyone who does something to a dead body there's a real cultural societal sort of hell no we don't that's that frightens people and in the past it probably hasn't been served that back in the bad old days it probably wasn't as scientifically rigorous as it is now opinions were given and I'm talking before Prof Cordner's day, um, it was people like him who really revolutionised it. It's, you know, the day where an opinion would be given and it's correct because, you know, I'm a doctor and I say so. Um, and that was just taken as gospel. Whereas nowadays people question more and we're scrutinised more and quite reasonably people are saying, well, what's your evidence for saying that? Rather than just that's your opinion, are you making that up? Is there there science behind it? And it probably is relatively recent that we're saying, look, we need science behind what we say. Um, Of course we do. Why wouldn't we? And, yeah, that development and some centres like VIFM have embraced it and said change happens, change is inevitable, it will happen, progress happens, and we can either be curmudgeonly and moan about it and say no I don't like change how we're doing it's fine or we can say okay let's try this new technology and we can direct how we use it and we can guide how we use it so that we get the best use out of it 
I guess it's like democracy. If you don't vote, you can't complain about who the government is. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, technologies like that for us. If you don't pick it up, try it, see how it works, then you can't complain when it comes in and you're being forced to use it. And so that's that's what we're doing with that research is saying, look, let's just see, let's see if it works. Let's yeah. just see how we can work it and it might fail spectacularly. And in which case we'll say, yeah, fine. Or it might work really well. Um, but yeah, the the science basis for what we do, oh, yeah, I would agree with your gut feeling on that. It, it's relatively recent. Because um, one of the potential outcomes is you can be sending people to jail for the rest of their lives, can't you? If if, yeah. if you're wrong about something. And I guess at the other end of the scale, there's the scientific breakthroughs. And then there's, I've been reading a lot lately about the body farm outside of Sydney, because I'm thinking I'd like to write more about that. Mm. So they have, you know, people who've, who've donated their remains to science after death and they they put them in all the situations um, and see how decomposition happens. And one of the, the big breakthroughs that they had in 2019 was that they, they saw that bodies move, continue to move after decomposition mm. or during decomposition. And it made me think about possibly people could have been proven, in inverted commas, to have moved bodies after death, where in fact the bodies just moved of their own accord after after death. Things like that. I mean, that's a massive breakthrough, isn't it? To just observe a body during decomposition the way they have at that facility. Absolutely. It's huge. Yeah. And to get it in an Australian context as yeah. well. Yeah. Because we get so much data on things like how long does a body take the surface in the water? Well, some of the data comes from the Thames in London. Yeah. Now, there's not many places in Australia that are comparable to the Thames in London. And it's that, yeah, to get that data from an Australian context and have some incredibly smart researchers working on it, one of our forensic technicians had done some research there before she came here. And she's a you know a very smart, motivated young woman. And just to hear the enthusiasm they had for what they're doing and, and over time refining those questions to ask. Because as you say, at the end of this, there's a court of law and someone's life path from there on will depend on getting it right. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's the catastrophe. You, you don't want to get that wrong. Um, and sure, there's checks and balances and the incidence of things going horribly wrong is probably pretty low because I, you'd like to hope if someone is being convicted, it's on more than just one piece of evidence. Yeah, for sure. Um, but everyone deserves a fair trial and, and deserves the evidence for or against them having done something to be fair and unbiased and, and impartial and, and proper. You know, not just a made-up, oh, well, I'm a doctor. Oh, that's my opinion, and how dare you challenge me? Um, mm. Go ahead, challenge me, ask me questions, because if I'm an expert, I should be able to defend what I say. <laughs> but also, <laughs> you know, there is grey area, and I think that's something that fascinates yeah. people, and we talk about a lot when we're talking about this book. A lot of the journalists are asking about the title, CSI Told You Lies, and, and I'm saying to them something that that Professor Cordner says to me is that, you know, we work in a grey area. People increasingly mm. think that we're going to bring them answers, black and white answers, because that's what they see on television. But much of our work is actually in the grey area. Do you find that? Do you find that people expect you to be able to tell them something precise and exact more often than you can? Very much so. There is definitely that CSI expectation that you can say the time of death was between 10 and 10.25 yeah. and they had a Big Mac with a large fries 15 minutes before they died um, and they were in exactly this position and the assailant was right-handed holding the knife backhand or something. Yeah. Whereas the reality is, yeah, Prof's right, the shades of grey are what we deal with mostly and it's about trying to know how far you can go but also being comfortable sometimes with saying I don't know mm. but saying I don't know is hard because the courts because of CSI expect you to know and and look on the one hand CSI is great because it means people know what my job is and they understand what I do and and it gives a bit of glamour to it for <laughs> um, yeah. whether that's a good thing I don't know but uh, <laughs> but it also does create expectations and 
yeah, we, we need to educate people about what we can and can't say. And look, I think we're all learning now as we go through this pandemic that science is grey. Science isn't black and white and experts will say different things and it's not necessarily a yes or no answer to everything, but it's that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. And it's not just courts, it's it's families. I mean, I'm mm. thinking of one case that I mentioned in the book that you were not involved in, but where a pathologist had to give evidence in court saying, yeah, this victim was attacked by this very well-known rapist and serial killer, but she also had a lot of medical issues and I can't mm. tell you which one killed her. I actually can't confirm whether or not the attack is what caused the end of her life or if these medical problems caused the end of her life. Mm, mm. I mean, that's a really, for me, that would be a hard message to deliver in a courtroom in front of her family who want you to say he murdered her, he ended her life and, and you know, they want you to help convict him. I mean, mm. that's, that's hard, isn't it? Oh, that's incredibly hard, yeah. those expectations. And we're human. You, you feel yeah. it. You've got to stay true to what you can and can't say, but of course you feel it. And you know that everyone else in the world is going, just say it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So on the other hand, you've got to say to someone, well, you take your victim as you find them. You know, little little old people who are attacked and die, yes, they have lots of underlying heart and lung disease sometimes and that makes them more susceptible, but the easiest way not to have that discussion in court is, don't attack people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But maybe um, but, you have to say she yeah. might have a heart attack. I can't yeah. I can't give you what you want. I can't yeah. say that he killed her because she actually died of the heart attack. Exactly. So those those gray areas, yeah. you know, are yeah. are hard. The, the, those are the things the rest of us I think yeah. find difficult. And I don't want to be flippant about no people attacking people um because clearly it's a complex situation mm. but, but yeah we we can only safely say what the pathology tells us that's mm. all we can say and i don't do anyone any favors by trying to match an agenda that may or may not be there yeah you make the point that it's not the bad guy's not your none of your business no exactly um and we we are kept somewhat at an arm's length from the police investigation and and I'm comfortable with that. They have their areas of expertise. I have mine. And if they all match up, well, great. But we, we don't influence them. They don't influence us. So we can only do what we do. More about Dr Joanna Glengarry's career coming up soon. And even more again in CSI Told You Lies. You can also read about Dr David Ranson who travelled to the Netherlands to help identify the victims of MH17, which was shot down over Ukraine in 2014. I worked closely on that chapter with Rin Norris and Anthony Maslin, whose three children, Mo, Evie and Otis Maslin, were on that plane with Rin's dad, Nick. They have a lot to say about the purpose of their lives and the way they live ongoing relationships with their three children. There are links in the show notes to help you get a copy of the book. 
thank you to patrons Rebecca Bavage, Jeanette Hughes, Lucy McMahon, Kerry DeSmith, Laurie and Hayley Robinson. In this book, we spoke specifically about two cases that you worked on and people talk to me, they can't believe that you worked on both Eurydice Dixon and Aya Masawi's cases, two young women who were murdered in Melbourne, quite yeah. close together and under similar circumstances. They were both walking home at night and both attacked by complete strangers, young men of similar ages to them. Was there anything in that chapter that you didn't know or that sort of connected with you when you read it? It was interesting hearing about their backgrounds mm. for the first time. I tend to go into a bit of isolation mode when I'm dealing with a case like that because in order to do my job, I want to concentrate on doing my job. And look, you're right, they they were unpleasant cases. They're cases that resonate with a lot of people because people have friends, sisters, mothers, cousins, nieces, um, girlfriends, wives, who who they think, gee, that could have been them, just the, the randomness of it. And because of the nature of those cases, and, and as, you're, as you've said, yes, they, they were horrific cases. There's no getting around that. I didn't read a lot about the background or I didn't follow the media much at the time. And that was really to protect myself, not because I didn't care, but because I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth at that point in time. You know, it had to be around looking after those young ladies and, and doing my job for them. Mm. Um, so that was nice now, so long down the track to be able to read and hear about them and learn about them from their friends and their family and their loved ones and the lovely things people had to say and the, the vibrant young women that they were. That I really liked that. I really enjoyed that, hearing that side of it properly for the first time. Mm. And so much more that you had in common. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a bit spooky. Yeah, even your relationships mm. with your fathers, I noticed, as mm. I was writing that that came out as I sort of dug into your background a bit too and just found <laughs> articles that were written about you back in New Zealand and you were talking about your dad and how much he influenced you and and I realized oh, all three of you were very close to your fathers and go-getters and really striking out as young women really ambitious yeah it's funny how these things work out isn't it so that was a big part of wanting to write the book to me was to highlight firstly that you're human beings and that you're not weirdos <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's like you were saying earlier about how this this stigma that's built up around your work over the centuries and yeah to to just remind everyone that you're all very normal people and that every one of you although you're very different people every one of you sort of talks about the the service the the idea of service that attracts you to this line of work is one of the things that attracts you to yeah. it yeah and I reckon we're probably quirky <laughs> yeah, but yeah. we're all got our little quirks. No one's particularly bizarre. I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you no. works, but there's no, you know, creeps in there. No, <laughs> you know what I no, mean? Like, exactly. They're no, they're a good bunch. Yeah, um, but yeah, even within medical circles, there's a bit of mystery and stigma around forensic pathology because really? so many everyone's so focused around keeping people alive, which yes. is great. I'm all for that. Keeping yes. people alive is fantastic. But there's still a bit of mystery about death, even for doctors and hospitals and, and general practitioners. Um, well, a and, lot of people talk yeah. about that outside of forensics. They say that people still treat death as failure in medicine. It's mm. like, well, we're all we've all got to die eventually, yeah. guys. Like we can't going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Michael Burke talks about that in the book because he had to go to the hospital to perform this incredible operation where he, because David Hooks, the cricketer, wanted to donate his organs. Yep. But of course, they needed the autopsy for a criminal investigation. So Michael yeah. went to the hospital and they sort of kind of did it all at once. And he talks about that, about arriving and everyone looking at him like, oh, we know who you are and why you're here. And yeah. everyone else was all about trying to, to help him survive. And it was Michael who was not about that. I've had the same. Mm, I really? drove up to a regional hospital. Someone had been um, shot and was expected to die, mm. but 
the police really wanted to know what was going on and they said, we're not getting a lot out of the, the mm. doctors at the hospital. Can you come up to give us something to go on? Sure, absolutely. Oh. Go and then you go in and you realise, oh, okay, this is a bit spooky now. Even though I've looked after thousands of live people over the years before I went into pathology, it was strange to go back and to realise, oh, that's right, all the, the treatments and the painkillers and the fluids and the antibiotics and that bedside manner. Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. I have to actually talk to people again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have to worry about that normally, no. Yeah, so, but, yeah, it's a, it's a different focus. And, yeah, they look at you like you're just weird, but, wow, you, you know about injuries, don't you? Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> so, you are doctors. Look, yeah, yeah, um, people forget that. Because uh, they get confused, they think we're friends for scientists. Or like, no, they they're experts all of their own. Um, mm. We're doc- doctors first. And look, I had a coroner this morning showing me a, a lump on his arm, and what did I think of that? And should it be cut out? <laughs> so, what and what yeah, it, should it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. So, what happens when you tell people your line of work? I mean, you're you're out and about. You're not married, so you. I'm, I'm assuming you're dating. You're you're you know. Um, I'm not going to pry, but what happens when you tell people for the first time what you do? They get that mix of curiosity, wanting to ask, but not really wanting to know. Yeah, they they want to know, but but then they realise that they really don't want to know the details, that they're, they're happy with, with general comments. And, I suppose um, it would depend, though. If you scored yeah. me on Tinder, I'd be like, oh, and I'd, I'd, <laughs> wanna, I'd never let you go. But in general, yeah, okay, in general. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I think mostly people are really fascinated by it. Um, and that's why I say CSI is quite nice. They... It means that I don't have to explain what my job is. People understand it. They get it. And, um, uh, yeah, they probably think it, it's far cooler than it is um, and wonder why I'm not walking around with a gun and stilettos and a cocktail dress. <laughs> and a leather but, jacket. And having and then, yeah. affairs with everyone you work with. Exactly. Like, <laughs> no, no, we're boring. We come to work and we work. I know. Um, the more you know about it, the more irritating the shows are, though. Like, I like Silent with Silent Witness a lot, but I'm like, what? Well, what do you care? Shut up. You know, wh- why do you care about the offender? Just go back in the lab. What are you doing? You know. Yeah, I can say I've I've never gone round to someone's house to have to go through their rubbish to try and solve a crime. <laughs> Why would you want to? I know. Why are you Googling that thing? It's none of your business. Just do the job. Do the examination. I know. But it would be nice if all you ever had to do was deal with one case at any point in time. That would be a nice luxury, wouldn't it? For weeks. It <laughs> for seems weeks, like they just apparently. had this guy on the slab for weeks. Yeah, I have to say, I feel sorry for the deceased because they're just left out there with their little modesty towel, as you say, for weeks on end. <laughs> Everyone walking in and coming and going. and In a huge yeah. lab as well, like a huge room. They just have one body in there for ages. I'm really glad that I don't have to have where they have where their office and the mortuary is all the same thing. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm glad that we don't have that. that. That's not a great way to spend your day. You don't. You're very far removed. So how much time do you spend in the in the mortuary? I can see your office there. It's just a normal, nice office. Just yes. Generic government issue office. Yeah. You, no sights or smells or sounds from where no. you are. The mortuary is very far away. You have to go down yes. there. You get changed. There's a whole area in between, locker room and all yep. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, very how, much how, so. how much time are you in there? Look, pre-COVID, that was easy to answer. Right. Um, mm. We'd be in there most days. Four days a week, say. These days, we're doing a, a bit more of a mix of having days working at home, having days coming into work. But look, we'd probably still be down there maybe three days a week. And on the other days, we're formulating casework or we're doing our um, triage preliminary assessment process where we liaise with the coroners and, and to determine who may or may not need an autopsy. So... It's, yeah, full-time, but we'd be down there at least a couple of days a week, spend the morning down there. Um, but as you say, it's it's more like an operating theatre than yeah. a, the office that they have on CSI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, but the scrubs are far less glamorous. I yeah. love the scrubs so much. I was gifted a set because I just love them so much. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's like legitimately being able to walk around in pyjamas. Yeah. 
really? Yeah, and Crocs, pyjamas and Crocs, I love them. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Yeah, I used to have a pair of Crocs hanging around the place but uh, and gumboots. And gum Flopping around in gumboots. Yep. Yeah, I do. I love them. And the smell is generally, do you still notice the smell? I have this conversation with everyone who works there because I know that you do stop noticing it. I still notice it. Mm. Yep. Um, I don't notice the overall mortuary smell, but I know people do notice that. Um, you certainly notice if you've got a body that's in a state of decomposition and, yes. and they can be fairly aromatic. And I've never you that. encountered that. I've, I'm just talking about the general smell. I've never been there. Yeah, one of those. That, that, the, the decomposition smell is distinctive, but the mortuary itself, I, d- I don't smell it. Mm. Don't smell it. Don't notice it anymore. Um, even when I've been away for a long period and come back, it still still just smells the same. Gosh, Mix of disinfectant and other stuff do you do you do you miss being on the tools as they say as much as you were because I know in New Zealand you you had like so such a heavier workload didn't you how much were you in the mortuary there there we would have been in every day we were running a a six day a week roster um because there's a lot more it's a different cultural environment in New Zealand around the rapidity of getting cases done and released to the family or released to the, the whanau, that's the, the extended um, Māori family. Mm. And there was a lot more time pressure around it. Here there is an understanding that, yes, we need to do the job in a timely manner and as quick as we can, but also to do it the best we can. Sometimes that takes a bit longer. So do I miss being on the tools as much? Yes and no. I've probably replaced that busyness with another type of busyness because I think I've realised I'm pathologically unable to sit still sometimes and and I always feel like there has to be something that I'm doing. It means that all of the things that you put on the back burner when you're busy, you can finally do. Um, So second opinions or doing opinions that are sought by defence lawyers or other coroners from interstate or overseas it's a really valuable resource and 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 part of our role but when things get tight in terms of time you don't get to do it whereas those are are really fascinating to be able to provide advice around those cases and review them like we talked about earlier doing the research doing teaching and we've got some great trainees at the moment and trying to Mm. um, get involved and aiding them to grow up and become the great pathologist that they have the potential to be. All of that sort of extra stuff that gets put aside but is still really important to do, still manage to film a day up doing that. And, yeah. and I like it because it means the job's really diverse. You're not just nose to the grindstone work, doing cases, signing out cases. You get a bit of diversity in the day and that's incredibly rewarding. It, it means you walk out of the door, close the office door at the end of the day and think, I really enjoyed that day. That was great. I enjoyed that. Great. Mm. What about when you have a break? I don't know how long a holiday you've ever had since you started working in this field and you do your first post-mortem back, your first autopsy back. What's that feeling like? Are you looking forward to doing it again? Is it? Do you ever get nerves again? You you do get a little bit of nerves of, oh, that's right, doing this again. What do I... What do I do? Yeah. And then you go in and you pick up the dictaphone and you start speaking and then or you pick up the scalpel and your forceps and you think, okay, this is just like riding a bike. I've got enough sort of muscle memory that it all comes back and and you realise that, okay, I'll get up to speed again in a couple of days, but it's still there. You can still do it. Like some of the unusual case types that you might only get once a year. When you get one coming along, you think, well, that's right. Hang on, I better just refresh the old grey matter about what I need to do and what's think an unusual, and what are the issues. What's an unusual case type? I, um, I always thought they were quite formulaic, like they all follow the same basic way in, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the, the, probably the, the base of what we do is the same, but then different types of deaths, you'll need to do different investigations. So a mm. death investigation of an infant will be different from yeah. a 70-year-old bloke who's dropped dead of a heart attack 
um, a death in someone who's pregnant or has just given birth will be different from a drowning death. So yeah. each case has its own little quirks and, and just little issues. And, and you're always thinking not just about what you're doing at the time, but, okay, what are the issues that are going to come up down the track with this, be it issues in court, issues for the coroner that they may, might want us to address or issues that are going to be of importance to the family. And you're always just thinking, okay, what are those little things? I need to think about that now. I've got that one chance to do it. I need to make sure I've covered all those bases. I mean, certain types of deaths due to injury are unusual. So strangulation deaths, for example, they're really uncommon. So you just want to make sure you're going down thinking, okay, is there anything special I need to do? No. Okay. Got this. I can, you know, this is sorted. This is fine. Is that um, something you Google, you know, yeah. when you go to the doctor now and they look up things all the time on the computer, is it similar now with you guys? Like if it's a strangulation case, do you go, oh, I'll quickly look that up to remind me of all of the checkpoints of things that I have to remember? Or is that all in your mind? At this stage in my career, most of it's now is in my mind, mm-hmm. but I'm old school. I go back to the books. Yeah, right. Yep, I, yep. I love books. I've yep. got you know, big yep. bookshelf behind me of all my textbooks. And some of those I've read five, six times over and they've got highlighting and scribbling and writing all through them. So I still love the books because I think when you Google a, something in a field that you're an expert in, you realize just how superficial the results on Google are. They might oh. be a really nice overview of something, but when you're talking about the nitty gritty or the details or the subtleties, those those grey zones that Prof Cordner talks about. Yeah. The the internet doesn't deal with that so well. Because mm-hmm. if someone's writing something to read on the the internet, they want to make it sound straightforward and black and white. Mm-hmm. They don't no one wants to read an article where you say, Well, it could be this, but sometimes if this was present, it could be this, or it might be this, or even Sometimes it could be this. People will just lose the plot entirely. So the, a lot of the stuff on the internet is a great overview, but it's when you really want the details that you consult the books or you consult your colleagues. And I suppose you've got to cross-check sometimes, wouldn't you? You've got, like you've got, you know, 80-year-old man fell off ladder. Have you got to, like, cross-reference 80-year-old man with fell off ladder and kind yeah. of... Yeah, both things you, you, in mind. You'll automatically be thinking about, well, yeah, his age places him at risk. Did he have some sort of natural disease event? Did he have a mm. heart attack that's made him fall off the ladder? Or was it just an accident? Because men of a certain age and ladders is just a really bad combination for injuries and deaths to happen. Yeah, did the injuries happen when he was alive? Did they happen when he was dead? How do I put this all together in a way that answers the questions that someone's going to ask of me? Sometimes that's straightforward. Sometimes that's not. When you're going in, you don't want to like create or disturb something that you will want to look at later, if that makes sense. Yeah, you need to make sure in your approach that everything you think you might need to look at is going to be in the best condition for you to look at it. And I mean, that's where lucky our technical staff are, are really highly trained. And when they're assisting with the autopsy you know they're skilled operators of their own accord and they know how to do that to give us the best possible chance of getting getting all the answers and getting all the information we need so so who are um, they they're like assistants with you in there yeah the 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 easy analogy is they will be like a nurse who assists the surgeon when they're doing an operation But to my mind, they have an extra layer of skill because they are trained in terms of doing the dissections and the examinations, and I will rely on them. If there's something anatomically tricky that I need to really visualize myself, then then I will do that. And every pathologist should be able to do everything that the the technician does as well. Probably, I reckon, they are better at it than, than some of us because they do it so often. And so it becomes a team effort of, I'm able to to think and watch and observe as they are doing the dissections, ah. step in as needed, and it becomes that team effort of looking at the deceased together. You can't do it by yourself. It's very much all of us in that together. And actually, and, now uh, that you mentioned that, I, I seem to recall someone telling me once that up until not too long ago, they weren't that highly, like it wasn't that highly specialised a job. That's another thing that's sort of a fairly recent innovation. 
Yeah, so true. getting them formally trained yeah. and, and recognised at what they do. Mm. Um, there are people who've come into it who've really done the the old apprenticeship model, come in from high school, learnt on the job, gained all those skills. We get others coming in who've got science degrees or backgrounds in forensic science or other science degrees have come into it. We've had people who were teachers coming into it. There's a real spectrum, people who have worked in anatomy demonstration and so know their anatomy back to front, upside down and inside out. So it's a really diverse mix and they all undergo that same structured training to learn the techniques. And these are the people who do the the tissue harvest when people donate tissues after death Mm. um, for the donor tissue bank. It's a really skilled and important job. And as you say, back in the day, it was, again, not recognised for what it was. But I really hope it is more recognised now because um, they're good at their job. Yeah, and so important. Absolutely. Because, again, you know, they could be not only are they, you know, harvesting tissue that saves lives, they're assisting in a process that sends people to jail sometimes and all sorts of things, incredibly important work that they do. Yeah, and there have certainly been times where a body will come in, the the technician who's admitting that body, because they're so experienced, they'll be able to look and say, hang on, something's really not right here that may have been missed up until then. Mm. And it's... You know, it doesn't happen often, but I, in my career, I've had one or two times where the technician has been the one who's looked at a body and gone, hang on, this isn't right. We need to get the pathologist involved. And I think this this is a really concerning death. And some of these deaths turn out to be homicides. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I know, as, as you've alluded to, we always talk about being part of this as a team. We're all very much a team. And we are. You can't you can't do this in isolation um we all rely on interactions with our colleagues from other other specialties we rely on their expertise and i think that's what makes it such a good place to work and makes the outcome of the work we produce so much better um because you're not just sitting there in an office door closed don't talk to anyone else don't know what's going on um you just get that broad experience it seems like your field, though, is very um, generous and collegiate. I was telling a friend just yesterday about <laughs> the looks you all get on your faces whenever the Sydney Body Farm comes up. It's like you all just get like, oh, Sydney Body Farm, just like really, <laughs> really, really wistful. I said, but it's not like it's not envious. It's not like you're je- jealous. It's like you're just really admiring of it just like oh lucky Sydney and the body farm they're so lucky and but as because I said but because everyone gets to go there and like you know pre-COVID and post-COVID it's you go there you can do courses there you can study there and they share the obviously it's just like a, a field where it seems like there's really great relationships interstate and internationally and people go to study and share information a lot you know is that true that's how it feels yeah, it is. I mean, look, we're such a small specialty that not only Australia and New Zealand are very small, but the whole planet is really small. Yeah. Everybody knows somebody from a department somewhere in the world. Um, we've all got contacts and um, that that's part of the advantage of going to, to meetings and networking is catching up with people. And um, it's that in, informal discussions in the lunch breaks of, now I'll catch up with someone from South Australia and say, hey, how are you going? You've got your new scanner. What are you doing? And they can pick your brain for what they're doing and you can pick their brain for any new ideas. Um, and it's great every time we get pathologists who come from other departments, uh, from elsewhere in the world who come to work here and you think, well, they've got ideas that they can bring in. And as you say, it's not a competition. It's mm-hmm. not like there's a, a gold medal um, for who does this the best the end of the day you'd hope that every department over the you know on the planet is trying to do it to the best that they can and some places do it better some places don't do it so well some places just do it differently that it isn't necessarily better or worse so yeah I think if you've got an ego yeah good luck to you the rest of us will just get on and share information and do what we can yeah 
everyone always asks me the same question to ask you guys, which is, or one of them is, have you ever seen anybody you know in the mortuary dead? Is obviously the the unspoken (laughs) part of the question. Yes, yeah. For me, no, thankfully, but I know that has happened to colleagues and generally we've got really good policies that people are then separated and are able to act as Joe Bloggs, the human rather than Joe Bloggs, the pathologist, and be allowed to play their role as friend, mother, father, brother, whatever that relationship is, and and keep that separate from their job. Obviously, they're going to have more insight than someone else as to what's going on. Don't know how I'd feel. I think that would be that'd be a challenge. Um, it's challenging, because, yeah, isn't it? We are still human underneath it all. Yeah, and to know what you know. Is, is comforting and challenging at the same time. I think I found it incredibly comforting to see it and to know what happens because I could see that it's very, you know, caring environment. And I don't know, there was something about it that I thought, oh, actually, this is really, this is really nice. It's really fine. Something about it just made me think, oh, this is fine. But then talking to Roland Legg, you know, the retired homicide detective, and he specifically said that as a young copper, he popped into his mind straight away, God, you'd never want anyone you know to be here. And he was referring to the old mortuary, mm. the Flinders Street extension, which was pretty crook. Mm. Yeah. And and then sure enough, he ended up attending his mother's inquest there. And mm. that broke my heart, you know, because he's such a stoic man. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really harsh. It was obviously a very difficult process for him. Once you know it, you know it. Death is hard for people. It, it, it's it's still tough. Yeah. It was nice to be able to tell one man in particular, who's not in the book because there was an inquest ongoing, that his father was cared for by nice people because he felt very comforted by that because he didn't know where his father went after the he was removed from the crime scene. Hmm. And as you say, in those ones where it's a criminal death, often the, in, the wheels of the investigation start turning and, and, yeah, you hope the family don't get left behind, but inevitably sometimes they might. So that is nice. Well, your your quote yeah. about saying that you see yourself as their final doctor is really yeah. resonating with a lot of people. They like that a lot. Good, good. Mm. I know that Aya and Eurydice, obviously, is, well, they are two big cases. And for you to work on them, I guess, concurrently, really, there would have been an overlap mm. because they stay with you for a long time by the time you're preparing reports they and they're waiting they to do. go to court and all that. Yeah, look, there's probably still a, there's really a handful of cases over my career that have really stuck with me. Um, Eurydice and I are, are on that list. Some of the others catch you just for the most unexpected reasons. I remember a, a schoolboy, he was 11, and he'd been involved in a motor vehicle accident. And that in itself is not particularly remarkable. But it was just seeing him come in in his little school polo shirt. And externally, this this beautiful little kid. Kids of 11 don't normally die. It's a really unusual age for us to see. And he's just there in his little polo shirt, but with horrific injuries internally. And you just, that, that really stuck with me. Um, that, that contrast between his, he was just off to school in his little polo shirt. I had a case overseas of a man who to this day has had the most severe constellation of injuries from a beating that I've seen. I mean, I've, I've never beaten anyone. I don't know how how long really it takes, but I, this did not happen quickly. And there was such a variety of weapons used. And he was a really vulnerable guy. He had mental illness. He had a bit of intellectual impairment. But people loved him. He was just a simple guy who did what he did and did it well, and people loved him. And two people decided over a crappy $100 car that didn't even work, but they wanted it. And to get that, excuse my French, but they absolutely beat the shit out of them. And you just think, why? That the the severity and the viciousness of the beating. And as you probably know from talking to us, pathologists don't often like to use emotional words and what we say. We'll resort to medical speak of bruises and abrasions and lacerations and, and blunt force injuries. But for this case, and, and it's the court processes are well closed on it, I can say in retrospect it was a, a vicious beating. And you just think, 
what did he do to deserve that? All for a crappy car that someone wanted and you did this to another human. And it's times like that where you just think humans suck sometimes. You know, humans are wonderful, loving, uh, brilliant, inspiring at times, but sometimes humans suck. And mostly we protect ourselves from that in the job. And a lot of the times you can understand how people have got to where they are, to where they might be doing things that, that are criminal or wrong. Sometimes you just can't explain it. And when I put aside my pathologist hat and put on my human being hat, you think, I don't understand that. I find that really hard to understand. And it's it doesn't happen often, but it's those cases that do stick with you. Um, but that's re- I find that reassuring because that means I am still human, that I haven't completely emotionally shut myself off from, from what it means to be a decent and caring member of society. Um, so whilst they're, they're hard, it's, it's kind of reassuring to go, okay, I probably am normal underneath it all. I can't imagine what it's like to walk in and see that, though. I mean, you know, every now and then someone, a pathologist will say, you know, to, to walk into the mortuary and see that and they'll sort of describe, you know, to see that, that man. Do you remember that moment mm. when you saw like that was your job for the day? Yeah, I remember driving down to the crime scene and seeing him and just thinking, oh, this is going to be unpleasant. And seeing people at the scene can be can be harder than the mortuary because the mortuary is sterile and surgical and, and science, um, whereas at the scene it's there and there's their personal effects around and there might be photos or little trinkets around and, and you see them, um, you see more of that humanity, whereas when you're in the mortuary, you've got your pathologist hat on and you're there and you're doing your job and you're thinking, all right, what, what do I need to find out? What do I need to do? How am I going to approach this? And it's very easy to then go into clinical mode. Um, but yeah, the crime scenes, when you see the personal personal stuff, you think, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's a bit harder. Thank you to patrons Rebecca Bavage, Jeanette Hughes, Lucy McMahon, Kerry DeSmit, Laurie and Hayley Robinson. Thank you to our guest today, Dr Joanna Glengarry, and to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine for their support with the book CSI Told You Lies. Thank you to patrons David Brennan, Stacey Cerati, Sarah, Catherine Turner, Carol Lay and Anthea. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.